This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday morning. It's Oscar Sunday, and this morning we'll be previewing Hollywood's big night. The Academy Awards are all about giving credit where credit is due, including for a very specific movie-making craft you may just be taking for granted. Lee Cowan will report our cover story. For all the Academy Awards that will be handed out tonight, you won't see one for best main title design. Yes, title design. That blend of graphic art and filmmaking that can be just as memorable as the movie itself. What would those films be without them? That's what you have to ask. Giving credit where credit is due. Later on Sunday morning. The call for the envelope, please summons mixed emotions for Sally Field. This morning, she'll be sharing her Academy Award-winning memories with us. I started this, and I'm gonna finish it. Though Sally Field has won the Oscar not once, but two times. I'm gonna lose what's left of my family. I'm not gonna let that happen. 
She just might be most famous for her acceptance speech. That for this one moment, you like me. That's what I said. Yeah. Sally, right over this way, please. This morning, we'll talk with Sally Field. And Miss Field. Grace Kelly is an Oscar winner of the past who went on to win ever greater fame as a real-life princess. Rita Braver tells us her story this morning in a postcard from Monaco. American movie star Grace Kelly became the elegant Princess Grace of Monaco. But to her three children, she had a more important role. What was she like as a mom? She was a very loving and caring mother. Ahead on Sunday morning, a peek inside the private world of Princess Grace. Fashion-conscious celebrities require a perfect fit before setting foot on the red carpet. And with the designer Serena Altschul visits with this morning, that's exactly what they'll get. Designer Christian Siriano has put some pretty big names on the best dressed list. But it's his fashions for women of all shapes, shades, and sizes that give him a unique style. We like a curve, a hip, um, all the above. Mm -hmm. And definitely, I mean, we size up to a size 26 sometimes. So everything has to make sense for that. Join us on the runway later on Sunday morning. With David Pogue, we'll do a double take over dead actors playing new roles. Elizabeth Palmer shows us how one man directs movies through his eyes. We'll also hit the beach with an Oscar-nominated animated short. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. For Hollywood movie makers, giving credit where credit is due is more than just a professional courtesy. It's an industry all its own. Our cover story is reported by Lee Cowan. As main title sequences go, The Naked Gun may not have been the most artistic in movie-making history, but it did its job remarkably well. It teed up the absurdity of the absurdly funny film that followed. Bingo. But like all title sequences, it fulfilled another need. Distracting us from what we're really watching. A long list of names. That's their role. To display each name for the contractually agreed upon time. The industry standard, by the way, is about two seconds. But it also has to do it in a creative way. Whether it's with the cafeteria food in Napoleon Dynamite or the wind-blown fonts in Twister. You're in the theater, and the lights go down, and you see this amazing thing that will evoke an emotional response. It's like 12 frames off. Kyle Cooper has spent a lifetime evoking that response. He lit the fuse in Mission Impossible. And he took us under the microscope in the island of Dr. Moreau. I like eyes and veins and arteries and, and insects. And, and I like to observe things that really exist and research things. 
He sees putting names on the screen as really the utilitarian part of title design. The art, he says, comes in how it all blends with the music. Telegraph the look and the feel of a film without giving too much or too little away. Cooper is perhaps best known for his title designs for Seven, where he took the audience into the mad but meticulous mind of a serial killer. I was at the premiere for Seven, and when we dropped that thing on the people, they went nuts, and they're like, for Seven, and there's this reaction. So it did what, in, in the best way, what a title sequence is supposed to do. I consider these things to be short films. It's a movie within a movie. I think so. In the early days, main titles were just that, titles with fancy fonts, like the fairy tale look of The Adventures of Robin Hood, or the colossal look of King Kong. Beautiful, iconic title card, strong music. You knew that you were going to see something larger than life. Lola Landikich is managing editor of a website called Art of the Title, an exhaustive resource for anyone wanting to take a deep title sequence dive. Oh yeah, it's a rabbit hole. <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, you can spend your life studying this. A good title sequence, she says, is all about mood. Star Wars gave us that once upon a time feel. While Bond was pure intrigue. That iconic gun barrel, was a design of Maurice Binder back in 1962, and it has stood the test of time. Goldfinger. Designer Robert Brownjohn took to projecting titles onto models, and that too stuck. You have the gadgets, the guns, and the girls. That's the trifecta. <laughs> but if there's a patron saint of title design, most agree it would be Saul Bass. If you're a fan of Otto Preminger or Alfred Hitchcock, you know his work. They were a little more abstract. They were very abstract. But it depends on how you're looking at it. I would look at something like Psycho, and you could argue that it's abstract, or you can argue that it's literal, because Psycho is sliced up. What about Vertigo? From the first few seconds of the film, you feel dizzy and you don't know what's happening. Which, of course, was precisely the point. These things are working on you in this way that is totally subconscious. Good ones work and you don't even know they work. Exactly. It's not just theatrical releases. The Sopranos started an arms race in TV main title design. Gone are the meet the cast days of the Brady Bunch. Now, we have the more nuanced look of Mad Men, or the beautifully eerie look of Westworld. Yeah, it's great when you get that real texture of the muscles coming through. And I think Patrick Clare has won two Emmys for Best Main Title Design. First, for True Detective, and again last year for The Man in the High Castle, a series that ponders the question, what if the Allies had lost World War II? What ingredient, I guess, if there is one, that makes a really good title sequence? I think it's got to be simple. Yeah? Yeah. I look at my favorite title sequences, and they all have a very sort of pure, simple idea at the heart of them. 
whether it's the brutality of cooking breakfast in a show like Dexter, a dead body being prepared for burial and six feet under. You take these simple acts and you turn them into something that really speaks to the journey of the characters. But it's cool because the production design is going to change over time. Finding that so simplicity, however, can be a superhuman challenge, especially in the sometimes complex universe of superheroes. And this is my favorite part. Blam, right in your face. That's great. Uh, Aaron Swarovski has designed title sequences for four Marvel films, including Captain America the Winter Soldier. There's a lot going on there. Even. And the beautifully intricate Doctor Strange. But in both these cases, her designs came at the end of the film, not at the beginning. The movie doesn't end on the final frame. It ends really after the director's kind of finished having his way with you, so to speak. So it's like the sorbet at the end of the meal. Can't skip the sorbet. Titles like these at the end of the film may have the toughest job of all, keeping you in your seat. What do you want them to take away from your title sequence? Well, I want them to wait till the very end of the scroll and look for her name. <laughs> As an added incentive to stick around, Marvel has taken a page from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You're still here? At the end of those credits, we got this. It's over. Well, if you stick around long enough through the end of Marvel's Deadpool... You're still here. ...you'll get a great spoof. It's over. It's over. Go home. Go home. A reminder that it's worth those few extra minutes of your attention... Go. ...whether at the beginning or the end, to give credit... Go. ...to those giving credit to. Next, the birth of color. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac, February 26th, 1909, 108 years ago today. A colorful day in movie history, for it was on that day at the Palace Theatre in London that natural color movies were shown to a public audience for the very first time. Woman Draped in Patterned Handkerchiefs was one of the short films on the program that day, shot in a process called Kinemacolor. Invented by George Albert Smith, Kinemacolor used a rotating filter of red and green gels in its cameras and projectors to create its color images. Cumbersome and expensive, Kinemacolor's two-color system couldn't reproduce blue or true white, and its images suffered from green and red fringing around the edges. Kinemacolor was eventually overtaken by Technicolor, which had developed a three-color system that produced a more true-to-life picture. You want to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. Though not the first film shot in Technicolor, 1939's The Wizard of Oz, He's the horse of a different color you've had tell about. <laughs> and Gone with the Wind, put Technicolor on the map for good. And God in my wit, I'll never be hungry again. And so, on this Oscar Sunday, we pause a moment to salute those polychromatic pioneers of times gone by. Ahead, fashions for every 
body. I don't care what size they are, I don't care where they're from, I just want them to feel good in what we're creating for them. Each of these gowns was a perfect fit for the celebrity who wore it. Thanks to the designer, Serena Altschul has been watching it work. When it comes to fashion, one name that's trending is Christian Siriano. And with the award season in full swing, the 31-year-old is starting to feel the pressure. I mean, the Oscars, that's it, right? Is there anything bigger? It is a big moment because so many people watch and so many people judge. There's yes. a lot of red carpet commentary, um, some unwanted. but Judging know, from uh, this year's Golden Globe Awards, where three stars wore his designs, and the Emmys, where he dressed nine, his clothes are wearing well. So that's a record, then. I don't even know if it was a record, but it was, it was quite a lot. Right. <laughs> Siriano's client list is impressive. This was Kathy Bates who was nominated. Oh. It includes a galaxy of stars, some of whom may shine at tonight's Academy Awards. Are you willing to share or give us any hint as to who might be wearing one of your dresses? I can't. You I can't, can't because you don't, I don't know. But he does know fashion. Siriana recently revealed his fall line during New York Fashion Week. The theme was the desert. And backstage, he was surprisingly cool. I try to be a little zen. I really can stress myself out so much. But that five minutes before when we're really like getting dressed and ready, right. that's when it's scary. Fashion is a high stakes business, but Siriano is willing to take risks. Take a look at the runway models. They are all shapes, shades, and sizes. And it's all by design. I don't care what size they are, I don't care where they're from, I just want them to feel good in what we're creating for them. That attitude is what brought Siriano to fashion in the first place. Born in Annapolis, Maryland, he was 13 when he started designing clothes, inspired by his size 16 mother and size 2 sister. I had every color, ethnicity, every size, every person around me, so it just wasn't different. So I think that that's what I'm trying to get people used to, that it should just be the norm. It doesn't have to be like a topic. Siriano's creativity was encouraged by his parents, and in 2004, he moved to London, where he interned with celebrated designers Vivian Westwood and Alexander McQueen. But when Siriano returned home, he struggled to find work. This is Project Runway. Until he auditioned for the fashion competition show, Project Runway. I'm kind of fierce and I'm kind of a celebrity in my own head. I definitely look like a little bit of a cartoon character, but that's okay. His highly theatrical approach to clothing earned him a lot of attention. Christian. He became the show's youngest winner. You are the winner. An experience he looks back on with mixed emotions. So that's like an actress who can't stand to be known for a film that she did her whole career. You know, that can be frustrating. Right. I definitely think now I would, I would, I probably wouldn't do it. But, but that's okay. But you wouldn't be where you are. I definitely would be in a different place yes. than I am now. 
Siriano has had his hits, and some think misses, like this dress worn by actress Christina Hendricks at the 2010 Golden Globes. We got a lot of hate on that dress, tons of hate. People hated it. You know, said don't put a big girl in a big dress. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. It meant the world to him last summer when Michelle Obama appeared at the Democratic National Convention clad in a classic blue dress he designed. And I'm okay with saying that that definitely changed my career. Emboldened by success, Siriano willingly broke the high fashion mold by dressing SNL actress Leslie Jones for her 2016 Ghostbusters premiere after her tweet revealed that other designers declined. And he capped the year off with his marriage to singer-songwriter Brad Walsh. So this is, um, this is where we got married. Oh, <laughs> and the gazebo. Yeah. On the red carpet, the runway, or anywhere, Christian Siriano has made his mark as a designer for every body, like it or not. So when people say like, oh, how could you do that? Of course you're going to take it personally. Yeah, you take it really personally. But then you don't do it again. But then you do it again, yeah. yeah. <laughs> My always thing is if I waited around for certain people to come around and support, I'd still be waiting. Next, Grace Kelly. Don't try to be a hero. You don't have to be a hero. Not for me. From star to princess. And the winner is Sally Field in Places in the Heart. And later, two-time Oscar wait, winner, wait, 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 wait. Sally Field. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You can't believe that a woman is crazy out of her mind to live alone in one room by herself. Listen to me, listen to me. Why are you holding me? I said you're holding me. Sunday morning goes to the Oscars. Here again is Jane Pauley. Grace Kelly won an Oscar for her starring role in the 1954 film, The Country Girl. Just the warm-up, it turned out, for the far more glittering role she stepped into just a few years later. Rita Braver has sent us this postcard from Monaco. The Principality of Monaco sparkles on the shore of the Mediterranean. It's a place of opulent apartments, a world-class casino, and an income tax-free policy that has drawn one of the world's wealthiest populations. Bonjour. Yet this tiny European city-state, less than one square mile, boasts not only a palace that dates back to the 12th century, but also a tale of love at first sight. There's a famous picture of my, well, I think it's famous, I don't know. <laughs> you can tell me that. Uh, there's a picture of my parents exchanging the glances um, with the view of Monaco in the background. So this is like the kind of view yeah. that could make you fall in love, right? Just looking out here. And, there was, and of course, there was the parents there. of Prince Albert, a, who now rules over this uh, country, were Prince Rainier 
and the American-born Grace Kelly. Tiny Monaco took on Hollywood overtones when film queen Grace Kelly was tumultuously greeted as she arrived for her marriage to Prince Rainier. Their 1956 wedding was the stuff of fairy tales. The dashing 32-year-old prince and the beautiful 26-year-old commoner. But she was already Hollywood royalty. The star of celebrated films like the Alfred Hitchcock thriller Rear Window with Jimmy Stewart. But if your opinion is as rude as your manner, I don't think I care to hear it. Oh, come on, a simmer down. You want a leg or a breast? To catch a thief with Cary Grant. You know as well as I do, this necklace is imitation. Well, I'm not. And the country girl, with her Oscar-winning turn as the wife of an alcoholic, played by Bing Crosby. Who's the guy you want to get back to? Frank, I'm warning you. I'm going to hit you with the first thing I pick up. Now get dressed! Have you chosen a name for your baby? No, we haven't decided on any name. She gave up her career to raise their children. Albert and his sisters, Princesses Caroline and Stephanie. Family photos affectionately preserved in her personal albums. What was she like as a mom? She was a very loving and caring mother. And she not only made sure that she gave us enough attention and enough love and we had everything we needed, but she was so caring toward other people, too. And she never forgot her old film world friends. Did she bring people into the palace that you remember specifically? Of course, uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Gregory Peck, Kirk Douglas, Frank Sinatra. How can you forget him? Is it true that Cary Grant used to love to tell dirty jokes when he came here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he and my father used to have a field day telling, <laughs> telling, telling jokes. The prince gave us a rare personal tour yes. of the palace. So this is the North Gallery, uh, and so facing the harbor area. Look at that beautiful view. This it was a different floor at the time. Right along here. Yeah. He showed us where his family played. So this pool was designed by your mother? I think both my parents sat around the table. And drew pictures and, and, of what and they wanted. Things. So you remember <laughs> splashing around in oh, this? Oh, yeah. Inside, there is history is and memories. So this is the uh, salle de garde, the guard's room because it must have been in the very old days where the officers of the guard met. Now used as a family room, Albert said his mom didn't like the way it used to be decorated. So she asked my father if she could redo this room, and so he said yes. And so we've had these, these blue-colored walls since then. And in the formal reception room, Princess Grace still reigns. That is such a stunning portrait. That was a portrait um, of my mother made by American artist Ralph Cowan shortly after her wedding. Her history is carefully preserved here. Childhood photos, letters, even her passports, and her clothes and jewels. The Cartier diamonds she wore during a visit with French President Charles de Gaulle. The gown she wore to accept her Oscar. Oh, really? And a dress from high society, along with her engagement ring from Prince Rainier, which she actually wore in the film. 
But Prince Albert and his South African-born wife, Princess Charlene, are ensuring that Princess Grace's memory lives on in another way. What does this evening mean for you? Well, it is to celebrate Princess Grace's legacy, her living legacy, for supporting the up-and-coming artists, emerging talent, and giving hope and inspiration to many others out there. Princess Grace of Monaco died this afternoon of injuries she suffered in a car accident yesterday. Prince Albert says that after his mother's tragic death in a 1982 car accident, his father began the Princess Grace Foundation USA to give scholarships to students in the performing arts because she had long provided private support to struggling newcomers. She knew what young artists go through and, and what their aspirations are and sometimes that they don't have the means to continue their careers. Through fundraisers like this one last fall in New York, the foundation has given more than 850 grants over almost 35 years. One recipient, Tyler Peck, now principal dancer with the New York City Ballet, performed at the gala with her husband, Robert Fairchild. I thought I was struck by lightning. Winners include Oscar Isaac, seen in Star Wars films, and a roster that boasts Emmy, Tony, Oscar, Pulitzer, and MacArthur Grant winners. Just last year, two Princess Grace Award recipients, costume designer Paul Taswell and actor Leslie Odom Jr., won Tony Awards for their work on the musical Hamilton. It was an encouragement, a wink, from this industry that I love so much and this business that I was preparing for, saying, um, we believe in you and uh, there might be a place for you here. As for Prince Albert, do you have a favorite Grace Kelly film? I kind of hesitate between High Noon and, uh, and Rear Window. It's right off the Paris plane. You think it'll sell? And he says with Grace Kelly's last films made 60 years ago, he marvels at the fact that his mother is still so revered. It's incredibly rewarding and touching to see that. Uh, people still admire her and that her name still resonates today. Just ahead, an animated day at the beach. Five films are in contention tonight for the Oscar for Best Animated Short. We have time to show you just one. Piper from Disney Pixar, a celebration of shorebirds with a treat at the very end.
talk to actors. Guys, it was really lovely. Next. My computer is my voice. Is movie making through his eyes. Can a movie maker, deprived of the ability to speak, direct a film through his eyes alone? Elizabeth Palmer has the answer. Okay. My Name is Emily is a road movie of sorts. It's the tale of an Irish teenager in foster care who sets out to find her father. He's a famous writer who, after a breakdown, All road has been committed to a psychiatric hospital. And having travelled down roads built by others, we arrive at death, having never truly lived. For Simon Fitzmaurice, the movie's writer and director, truly living is the point. Hello, Simon. With everything you've got. Eight years ago, Simon seemed to have it all. He was a handsome young husband. Look at this guy. I've got this guy here. This is my little boy. And father. An adventurer who climbed mountains. I absolutely couldn't believe it when I reached the summit. I didn't think I was going to make it. He'd also made award-winning short films. Is the ultimate compliment, so thank you very much. And had his heart set on making a feature. Then, Simon was diagnosed with ALS, or MND, Lou Gehrig's disease, a degenerative illness of the nerves and muscles. I have lost mobility in my limbs. I can no longer speak, swallow, or even breathe without artificial help. In this biographical documentary, the actor Colin Farrell speaks Simon's words. But I can still feel everything. The doctor suggested in Ireland years ago that he should be taken off the ventilator system and be allowed peacefully go. And Simon said, not on my watch, you know, there's just no way. Kicking and screaming, you know, do not go gentle into that good night. Simon said, no, death is not what I want. A lot of the film is based outdoors. We met Simon in his studio in the town where he grew up south of Dublin. My computer is my voice in every sense of the word. Still passionate about filmmaking, Simon spoke to us the only way he can, with a computer that tracks eye movements to spell out his thoughts. What made you want to write My Name is Emily? To spend this precious time I have doing something that fulfills me at the deepest level. That echoes in my soul. To manage to do this with M&D, to overcome all that that puts in my way, shows me how much it means to me. He did it with rock-solid support from family, devoted parents and sisters, his five children, and his wife Ruth, also a writer who remained undaunted even after her husband had lost the ability to speak and breathe for himself. You decided to have uh, another baby, which yeah. turned, out, turned out to be twins, uh, when you knew Simon was going to be very ill and disabled. Mm. Why did you go ahead and do that? It's just the way we are. For us, it was just a no-brainer. Just adds more chaos. Because <laughs> what else would you do? In a house already full of kids, Simon says. Adding more was the ultimate expression of being alive. <laughs> they got their hands full, man. Ruth and Simon have their hands full. I know it's been hard. Of course it's been hard at times. And Ruth is an extraordinary woman. And Simon's an extraordinary man. I'm very determined. It's just the way I am. Determined is an understatement. Once he'd finished the script for My Name is Emily, 
Simon decided to direct it too. There was a lovely moment just after the line stopped altogether. Yeah, when they stopped altogether, yeah, after yeah. the letters, yeah. We'll talk to actors. Guys, it was really lovely. Oh, good. He made it work with elaborate storyboarding done in advance. Less angry. Yeah, and this one, less angry, please. A support director to help relay his vision. <laughs> and a willing cast and crew. Moving on, close up on Stella, please. What gave you the most joy? From the first day of shooting, I was utterly elated. To me, directing on set is just thrilling because it requires 100% of your focus and ever creative fiber of my being. It is an extraordinary filmmaker. He knows exactly what kind of story he wants to tell. His work is imbued with an incredible sense of heart and honesty. I'll be much of a dad ever. You're not dead yet. That's exactly what I was thinking this morning when I woke up. <laughs> Suddenly he, he, he went from being the man in the bed in the house to, you know, getting up and out every day. And, you know, we all know nobody wants a grumpy husband who's stuck at home all day. It's much nicer to have someone who is, is, is driven and focused and getting out to work and coming home again. A fire has been lit inside me. Seriously, an energy I didn't know I had and it has not gone out. It's been life changing. OK, so everyone's listening. The microphone is yours. Simon, go ahead. Can you fly this plane and land it? Ahead. Surely you can't be serious. What's your favorite movie quote? I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Faith Saley speaks out. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Certain snippets of movie dialogue enjoy a life beyond the screen, much to the annoyance of our Faith Saley. Go ahead. Make my day. I'll be back. Toto? You talking to me? feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. You talking to me? No, I'm talking to you. Well, I'm the only one here. And I want to talk about movie quotes, or really people who quote movies. Like my husband, who can't remember your name, but can effortlessly spout lines from Caddyshack. This is the worst looking hat I ever saw. Well, you buy a hat like this, I bet you get a free bowl of soup, huh? I don't have this talent, or affliction, which can cause problems in conversation. I just never spent time with friends sharing bon mots from Monty Python. No, on second thoughts, let's not go to Camelot. It is a silly place. Or Jaws. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Or The Princess Bride. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. Now, I'm not saying movie quoting is a bad thing, but I do want to know why some folks love to drop a line. Nobody puts baby in a corner. So I turned to Mike Friedman, a psychologist and self-confessed movie-quoting addict. You know, if you can make a situation a little bit more interesting by using a movie quote, it's something that kind of breaks your own tension. And that's why most people do it. They do it just for themselves. But then what's really cool is that if you do that and somebody else notices it and like you have that moment where you are understanding each other well now it's kind of cool because now i've got another subversive lunatic in the room hmm 
obviously, I'm missing out by communicating almost exclusively in my own words. Perhaps enrolling in this shorthand would enhance my life. Maybe I can make new friends. You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? You tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me. You hear that? Hell's coming with me. I love your recreations. My new friends Jordan and Casey echoed our psychologist. We're just connecting over, like, just shared culture. And when you love something that much, it's really fun that someone else also knows it and appreciates it the same way. Well, I love to share culture. So I asked them to try me. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Oh, gone with the wind. Well done. The dude abides. Oh, oh. My husband made me watch this. Big Lebowski. Yeah! Ex that means your husband loves you. Yes. It was all going so well until I tried them. Laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. Laughter through tears is my favorite I... emotion. Uh, I want to be friends with you guys, but I... Yeah. No, well now, we... well, now we can't. Laughter through tears is my favorite emotion. Uh... Steel Magnolia. What about maybe I'll just stick to quoting myself? Anybody with me? Bueller. 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 Go by. Next. Amuse ourselves in this glass menagerie, darling. Sally Field. Back in the spotlight. Well, what are we gonna do when we get home? Go to bed. For a week. Good idea. And sleep. Want a bed? Sally Field was a memorable sidekick to Burt Reynolds in the 1977 film Smokey and the Bandit. She, of course, went on to other films and before long was answering the call for the envelope, please. Her response to that call was memorable as well, as she told me recently when we sat down for a chat. And the winner is Sally Field in Places in the Heart. Sally Field has heard her name not once. And the winner is Sally Field. But twice. With film credits including Forrest Gump. Life is a box of chocolates, Forrest. You never know what you're going to get. <gasps> Mrs. Doubtfire. The whole time, the whole time, you would. The whole time? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, man. Uh. And Smokey and the Bandit. Why don't you just drop me off here? I'll catch a cab. Too late now. Her place in the Hollywood pantheon is assured, but was hardly inevitable. Sally Field grew up in Hollywood's backyard. So you didn't grow up fancy people? Oh, no. Oh, gosh, no. I grew up um, with working class um, actors. Her mother, a sometime actress, her stepfather, a stuntman. It's really an insecure life. So many times, uh, you know, we, we lived in a house and then the next day they came and took it away, so. But she describes herself as the queen of her high school drama department. I was lucky enough to be part of an era where they actually had the arts in the schools because I honestly don't know what would have happened to me without it. Uh, just not to be over melodramatic, but I mean that seriously. 
while classmates were going off to college in the fall of 1965. You see before you me, Gidget. If you're in doubt. She was starring in her own TV series, Gidget. Good grief! Sister. After Gidget, who could forget the flying nun? It was humiliating, it was degrading, it was stupid, it was... Sally Field, for one, would like to. It was, was successful. It, but yeah, so what? You know, that everybody had a flying nun joke. Everybody, you know, and I couldn't tell the difference between the nun being the joke and me being the joke. Might that have been a career ender for you? Oh, gosh, yes, for anybody. <laughs> to come out of that uh, was incredibly difficult. Harder still was breaking through the Hollywood barrier between TV and film. You know, those years between doing The Flying Nun and between finally being able to find my way into film that was worth doing, there's a lot of distance there. Mr. Mason, I started this, and I'm gonna finish it. But in 1980, she won an Academy Award for Norma Ray. I'm staying put! Sally Field. What was the story with your little white oh, short oh, oh, yeah, dress? Yeah, I yeah. don't mean to offend Bob, you. Bob Mackie made that for Bob me. Bob Mackie made yeah, that? Yeah, isn't that weird? Designer Bob Mackie, who made some of the most show-stopping, jaw-dropping gowns to grace the red carpet. I Why didn't, didn't you wear a gown? He didn't. You know, what, you know what? I didn't have the wherewithal even then to say, you know what? I want to be in a gown. I want to look a certain... But it looked like an Easter dress. It, it did. And I think he... Yeah, it was like a little girl's dress. And I think that he interpreted my personality. Norma Ray wasn't a fluke. Five years later, Sally Field won another Academy Award. I'm going to lose what's left of my family. I'm not going to let that happen. I don't care if it kills me. I'm not going to give up. And if the two of you do, you can go straight to hell. This time she wore an Oscar-worthy gown. You're lucky you had another chance. I did, but then, then I just went in and got something off the rack. <laughs> well, the necklace was beautiful. Were they it diamonds? It cost $35. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> yes, it was just this glass thing that I thought, well, I gotta wear something on my neck. But nobody remembers what Sally Field wore that night. What they remember, or misremember, is her speech. And I wanted more than anything to have your respect. The first time I didn't feel it, but this time I feel it, and I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. Context. What was the context that people just didn't get at the time or remember today? Well, they wanted, you know, they wanted just take the last line and have that be what I said. And what I said was, is that this journey had been so long for me. It had been so unorthodox. When I won for Norma, I didn't feel it. And that I said if I ever got into this place again, I wanted to feel it so that I couldn't deny to myself that for this one moment, you like me. That's what I said. Yeah. But you sort of got publicly trolled. Oh, yeah. I sure did, yeah. And it still goes on. Still, wherever I go. Still, the people would shout it at me. Still, still, still. And, and you think, why did that resonate so much? Why did it? I think because of the very reason that I said it. I mean that people can't allow themselves to feel accepted. 
Perhaps then it's no wonder she regards the Oscar with, to use her word, suspicion. I don't mean to say I have disrespect or disregard for them, but I, if you look at the list of phenomenal actresses who have never been recognized by the Academy, you, it, makes you, it does make you suspicious of the Academy, and that, that you go, well then how really worthwhile are they, you know? Mrs. Lincoln. Madam President, if you please. Three years ago, she got her third nomination for the role of Mary Todd in Steven Spielberg's Lincoln. You think I'm ignorant of what you're up to because you haven't discussed this scheme with me as you ought to have done? When have I ever been so easily bamboozled? Sally, right over this way, please. A third Academy Award wasn't in the cards. But for all her recognition, the Oscars, Golden Globes, multiple Emmys, perhaps Sally Field deserves an award for perseverance. Don't ever let anybody tell you they're better than you, Forrest. Equal to some of the characters she's played. I'll wait for the chef to come and take me home. And I ain't gonna budge till he gets here. What is it with you and Southern women? I don't know. You're from... Van Southern Ice, California. California. Yeah. And yet, boy, can you do I don't know. Southern women. Well, I grew up with Southern women in reality. My mother, my grandmother, they were all from the deep south. So that sound is in my ear of all of them babbling and bubbling together. I can hear it. What are we going to do the rest of our lives? Just stay home, watch the parade go by. And next week, she opens in a Broadway revival of The Glass Menagerie as another Southern archetype, Amanda Wingfield. 70 years old and you're performing in a Tennessee Williams play. I mean, would you have foreseen that for yourself? I can't see that far in advance. And in reality, to see that far in advance is horrifying because you go, I can't do that. But when you look at just the tiniest bit of movement, then, you know, 53 years later, you look back and go, oh, that was a long way. Coming up, how deceased stars are making digital comebacks. It's a technological miracle of sorts. Actors seemingly performing from beyond the grave. How do they do it? Call it a double take, as David Pogue of Yahoo Tech found out. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know what it is and how to destroy it. The new Star Wars movie, Rogue One, was a big hit at the box office. Exciting story, thrilling effects, and gifted actors, including one who's been dead for over 20 years. I will tell him that his patience with your misadventures has been rewarded with a weapon that will bring a swift end to the rebellion. That's right. There's British actor Peter Cushing reprising his role as Grand Moff Tarkin, even though he passed away in 1994. How did they do that? Actor Guy Henry performed the new scenes, and then the Oscar-nominated special effects engineers replaced his face with Peter Cushing's. The original plans for this station are kept there, are they not? And how did the computer know exactly what Peter Cushing's face looked like, down to the tiniest detail? That's where Paul DeBevick comes in. At his office at the Institute for Creative Technologies at the University of Southern California, DeBevick has built a Death Star of his own. 
the light stage. So we're currently surrounded by uh, uh, over 10,000 LEDs uh, and there's about 20 high quality DSLR cameras. And we use a series of high-res photos from different angles to reconstruct a 3D model of your face. But then in over a hundred famous actors have stood on this spot to be scanned for the movies, including Angelina Jolie, Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Sigourney Weaver, and Dwayne Johnson. Once an actor has been scanned into the light stage, engineers can digitally insert him or her into scenes even if that actor is unavailable, much older or younger, or deceased. Hey, thought you could leave without saying goodbye. That's how actor Paul Walker was able to appear in Furious 7, even though he died partway into filming. We'll have the actor make a succession of about 50 different facial expressions, and that produces all of the different motions of their face. But we also can record a facial performance from all these different angles and then create a digital performance of that character that does exactly what they did in the video. The light stage might have cost several million dollars 10 years ago, but today you can build a person scanning setup with parts you pick up at the hardware store. Just ask Ari Shapiro. This is my capture lab. So I'm going to start with a shower, is that the idea? <laughs> exactly. Well, the, it is a shower curtain from Home Depot. Um, but <laughs> Shapiro the runs the Character Animation and Simulation Research Group at USC. He's been developing a human scanning system that uses 100 $20 cameras sewn into a shower curtain. Please remain still. Scanning completed. And in just minutes, Shapiro can have you in the palm of his hand. So it basically came up with this uh, model of you as points and colors, right? And then we can do something like uh, animate you, right? So. Oh, come on! <laughs> but here's the thing. It's fine to create virtual clones of people as long as everybody knows it's for entertainment purposes. But how long will it be before someone tries to pass it off as reality? Let's say I decide to make a presidential candidate do something heinous, and I release that as news. Um, is that plausible? I think it's not only plausible. I think that there are definitely people in various countries that are working on exactly that. Todd Richmond is the director of the Mixed Reality Lab at USC's Institute for Creative Technologies, and a man who thinks a lot about the implications of digital clones. Should the government be involved? Should there be a new bureau of ethics in digital? I think artists should have a place at the table. Um, technologists and practitioners need to be at the table. Politicians have to have some understanding of this because invariably policy will need to be made to address this. According to Richmond, it's past time for us to consider the very real power of make-believe people. I can create a virtual version of somebody who can walk and talk and say things that they never actually did. And that's a power that's never existed ever in the history of humans. Next, City of stars. David Adelstein's Oscar picks. With just hours to go until the Academy Awards, our critic David Edelstein offers his Oscar picks. 
It's an unusually momentous Oscar night for many reasons, not all to do with quaint notions like artistic merit. Another factor is, surprise, politics. Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Now, during the blacklist in the 50s, the government called Hollywood lefties Russian dupes. Oh boy, watch him throw that back at the White House. And pace yourself with the drinking games, okay? If you do a shot when someone mentions fascism, racism, sexism, or homophobia, you will be in a coma before the major awards. The nominees are... Of course, Oscar had its own race problem in 2016, with no nominations for non-whites. The Academy made membership changes and voila, people of color in every major category, deservingly. Shame works. Three out of four acting awards could go to minorities. I told him if he wasn't a mankind and move out the way so the mankind could find me. <laughs> it's hard to imagine Viola Davis not winning supporting actress in Fences. Academy voters still second-guess themselves over the 2011 Oscar they gave to Meryl Streep in The Iron Lady over Davis in The Help. Plus, Davis plays a wife who scores a moral victory over an unfaithful ass of a husband. Well, I've been standing with you. Big one. In the supporting actor category, Moonlight introduced us to the magnetic Mahershala Ali as the drug dealer who's the closest thing the young protagonist has to a father figure. In your pocket. Now I hear Dev Patel in Lion is making inroads, but this could be the much beloved Moonlight's only Oscar. No, I don't. For leading actress, my fave, Annette Bening in 20th Century Women, was omitted inexplicably. The five actresses left are brilliant. You say there's nothing here. Well, but Emma Stone will win in spite of some who say the movie is so L-I-T-E light, as if utter incandescence is a crime. Leading actor is weird. Casey Affleck in Manchester by the Sea cleaned up with us critics. No one alive conveys fogged in grief so movingly. But for various reasons, including whisper campaigns about Affleck settling two sexual harassment cases out of court, Denzel Washington in Fences is now the front runner. Everything, I mean everything else, is about Damien Chazelle's sublime musical La La Land, which suits me fine. I've heard people say it's apolitical, which in itself is political. I want to scream. This year is scary enough. Let's allow ourselves for just a little bit to dream. I'm Jane Pauley. Please join us here again next Sunday morning. If you like CBS Sunday Morning with Jane Pauley, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.